This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? It's softly raining. I guess softly is the word here in the Berg. So hopefully you won't be able to hear it. And if you do, you can just pretend that this is one of those, what do you call it, ASMR videos where they have some kind of weird noise and it's supposed to be soothing. I can't stand them for some reason. They like actually hurt my ears. Trigger warnings for this case are the same as they have been, rape and murder. So when we left off last week, Harvey had just killed Judy Dahl, his first victim. So he got a job at Universal TV fixing TVs, which was more money than his previous job. But in true Harvey style, he lost it three months later for unknown reasons. My money would be on not showing up or just being the general asshole that he was. For those of you who don't know, young'uns, back in the old days, you actually had to fix TVs. They had these, I don't know, I never saw like the guts of one, but tubes in them and all kinds of parts. And you actually had to take it to a shop and they would like replace the parts instead of today, how we just buy a new one. So then he goes, if you want to call it a vacation, he took himself a little vacation. He went back to Colorado, stayed with his mother for a while. He looked for work there, didn't have any luck, decided to go back to Los Angeles. He got a small bungalow on South Norton, and I have no idea where he's getting this money from. I'm assuming his mother, like she always did, is bankrolling him, his existence. And he reminds me of, well, I, I've already said with the rope and the strangulation thing, he reminds me of Dennis Rader, Andrew R. Schaefer. And with being a big loser who can't pay for his own existence, he reminds me of Joel Guy Jr. and Chandler Holderson. So he's like all these uh, people or killers that I've studied rolled into one. So by March, it's been at this point eight months since he's killed Judy. He's getting a an urge again. And he is smart enough to try a new technique. And he figured, and he figured right, that the police would be looking for somebody posing as a magazine photographer. Like, that's how he met Judy. So he goes back to his old friend, the One Ads. And I have to give you another little history lesson here. I didn't even know about this because this was before my time. They had these things called Lonely Hearts Clubs. And I thought that they were like pen pal things where you got people's addresses and exchanged letters. Well, some of them were, but some of them were like actual places that you went to. And um, I don't know, filled out forms of your name and your interests. And I would like a, you know, this kind of mate or this kind of mate. And they would like match you up like a matchmaking service. So this one happened to be called Patty Sullivan's 
Lonely Hearts Club. No, no relation to me. He goes there. He pays a $10 fee. He gave his name as George Williams, and he said he was a plumber from Pasadena. So there actually was a Patty Sullivan, and she interviewed him and gave him some numbers of women. He calls the first one and makes a date, and he said later on that he decided that if he liked her, he would rape her and take her into the desert. Fortunately for this woman, we don't know her name, he went to her place, and she brought him tea and biscuits, and she talked too much. I don't know if it was the tea and biscuits or the talking too much or just totally on its own. She didn't turn him on. And like I said, this was very fortunate for her because he left her and she lived. So victim number two is Shirley Ann Loy Bridgeford, who was 24. She had been divorced for three years. She had two sons, ages five and three, and she worked at a factory. Imagine it's 1958. You're a single mother with two kids. And wow, that had to be such a, a really hard existence. I mean, I'm sure it's hard being a single mother with two kids now, but in 1958, I just can't even imagine. So, of course, Shirley's lonely. And a friend suggested that she join Patty Sullivan's Lonely Hearts Club. So she did. She has her interview or whatever, and she waits for calls. And unfortunately, her first and only call was from a dude calling himself George Williams. This was on March 7th of 1958. And George had a line which I'm sure turned on all the ladies. Well, it's Harvey. So what do you expect? He said, are you free on Saturday night for square dancing? She said, yes. So Shirley was pretty smart. And she, even though she lived with her kids, she arranged to have him pick her up at her, at her family house with both of her kids, her mother, Alice, her two sisters, and her brother-in-law. So this George Williams goes to pick up Shirley for their date. And he's met by a crowd of people. Well, they found him, quote, pleasant and reserved, but with, quote, enormous ears. And he later said when he confessed that at this point he had already decided that he would kill her. But he liked her, so he wanted to drag it out and spend time with her and enjoy her company before he killed her. So they get in his car. And he said, um, instead of square dancing, would you mind going for a drive instead? So Shirley's like, sure. And I can imagine anybody would prefer a drive over square dancing. They stop at a cafe in Oceanside, which is 50 miles from Los Angeles. They ate sandwiches and Coke. He told her he was new in L.A. and was a plumber. After dinner... In Harvey's words, they necked and petted, which she, quote, seemed to enjoy. And I'm having a hard time buying the second part of that. Then he said that he was having so much fun with Shirley that he thought maybe he won't kill her. So by now it's dark. They stop on a dark mountain road and they necked some more. If you want to know what necked means, um... I can't help you there because that's a term that's before my time. 
being Harvey, he tried to have sex with her or tried to initiate sex, and she said no. Then he pulls out his gun, and he said now he felt powerful and in control. And one thing that's interesting about Harvey is it's only when he has a gun in his hand or when somebody's tied up that he feels powerful or worthwhile or dominant or assertive in any way. So he orders her into the back of the car and he said he caressed her and she was pleading him, don't do this. But of course he did rape her. His exact words when he confessed were, quote, I told her I wanted to have sexual intercourse and that if she did what I told her, I wouldn't shoot her. And I guess she got pretty scared, end quote. Well, no shit, Harvey. Now he decides he can't let her go because, well, he's raped her. She could identify him. Her whole entire family has seen him, and she's seen his car. So he's screwed. He wanted to wait until dawn so that he could get some good pictures of her in the daytime. So he ties her hands behind her back and told her the usual story that he was going to let her out in some remote place. So they go to some place called Anza Borrego Desert Park which is a huge, beautiful well, desert area in Southern California. He took out the good old blanket and his camera, and he said they walked two miles. That seems like a lot. I don't know, but they walked. He puts down the blanket and sat her down, and he's taking pictures. Then he finally hog ties her like he does before he's going to kill somebody. The rope around the ankles and knees the gag with the handkerchief, same configuration. And for some reason, he waited till sunrise because he wanted pictures of her in this position. So he supposedly sat there and she couldn't talk back because she has the gag in her mouth, but he talked about himself, I guess, like, like just a, a monologue. So the sun came up at 6.30. He took his pictures. He said that she was stiff and cold, but posed as directed. Then he kills her the same way as he did with Judy, and he put her body under a, quote, tall, funny-looking plant, end quote, also known as a cactus. This part's weird. He pulled off her buttons, he said, in case his fingerprints got on them. Um, never mind that he had just met her entire fucking family, and she knows who he is in his car and everything, but he's worried about buttons. He told the police he didn't take any of her clothes, but a surprise he did. He took her panties and, of course, the rope. It was after 8 o'clock that morning when he finished all this business, and on the way home, he threw the buttons and purse out the window. So Shirley's mother, Alice, was, of course, worried when Shirley doesn't return, and they report her missing to the police. The police go to the club where they knew that Shirley had met this dude, and it wasn't hard to find his name and address, or rather the address he'd given them, which of course was fake. Harvey later told the police that he felt more guilt after killing Shirley than after Judy, but that it didn't last as long as with Judy. He still wasn't working, his mummy was still sending him money, and she said that she was just happy he wasn't in jail. She only knew. He made a dark room for himself in which he could develop the 
pictures he took of his victims, not a, not exactly the type of pictures that you could take to have developed by a, you know, a professional developer. And every day, well, he did this before masturbated all the time, but now he had all these souvenirs. He had the pictures of his, his victims. He had Judy's shoe. He had Shirley's panties. And I want to branch off on like a side note for a little bit and explain something that's very important. According to Joel Norris, who is a psychologist and an expert on serial killers, the typical serial killer, which Harvey definitely is, goes through a cycle of seven phases. So get your TCU pen and paper out. This will be on the test. I'm just kidding. But these are very interesting and important to know. Step number one or phase one is what they call the aura. It's where the killer is gradually overcome by a desire for sex, deaths, domination, etc. And in Harvey's case, it would be sex. Phase number two is the trolling phase where they get out from their head and they actually start doing something, looking for victims. In Harvey's case, this was back when he was younger. He would prowl the streets of Denver and New York looking for women to accost. Now that he's in LA, he's looking for one ads for models or dates. Third phase is called wooing, and it's where you contact the victim somehow or survey them, like do kind of reconnaissance. Four is capture, which is self-explanatory. Five is murder. Six is the totem phase, and it's when you have your souvenirs, your pictures and your trophies, whatever it is that you've kept, plus all the fantasies that you have. And you, they usually do masturbate with them, but not necessarily. And you just look at this stuff and relive over and over until eventually, and I think as normal non-killing people, we can identify this. You can only relive a memory for so long before it, it naturally fades. And then you're in phase number seven, which is depression. And it's the, like, let down. The thrills worn off. The murder is over. And then, of course, you start back to number, number one. And that's what gives it the term serial killing. Joel Norris's theory is that number seven, the depression phase, grows shorter over time, meaning this cycle, and the time between the killing is less. As we see with Harvey here, once he started killing, his need for the rush became greater, and he couldn't contain it as long. And while we're on this topic, I have a good quote from Colin Wilson, the British criminologist. And this quote is about the archetypical predator, which we already know that Harvey is. And he said, quote, the first crime produces fear, revulsion, remorse, but it is also like a dose of an addictive drug. Again and again, serial killers have confided that they were unable to stop. Again and again, they have used the same image that it was as if they had fallen into the power of the devil, end quote. There's that terminology again, addictive drug. And I, I think if you listen to my Chris Watts episode a month ago, I know he wasn't a serial killer, but 
I likened his addiction to his um, girlfriend, Nicole, as a drug. In July of 1958, Harvey feels the need again. He is in the aura phase again. It's been four months since he last killed. And he knows he can't go back to the Lonely Hearts Club again. He needs some kind of a new ruse. So he decides to go back to his old favorite, the classified ads. But he didn't use the ruse of, I'm looking for a model. He just decided to pretend to be a dude looking for a date. So victim number three was Ruth Rita Mercado, a.k.a. Angela Rojas. She was 24. She was from Plattsburgh, New York, and she had been honorably discharged from the Women's Air Force. She moved to Los Angeles. Like many people, she wanted to be a movie star. She had an apartment on West Pico Boulevard. She did model for both professional and amateur photographers, and she decided that she would get into stripping, too, because it paid more. She put an ad in the newspaper for modeling work, and on July 22nd, she gets a call from Frank, the magazine photographer. And he said, I saw your ad. So she made an appointment for him to come that night. And, of course, this is Harvey. So he's getting himself ready. He checks his gun, loads his camera, had his favorite rope in the car. But, yes, this is the same rope he's been using this whole time. Getting himself all horned up. So he gets there and... Ruth said she's sick with some sort of bug and doesn't want to go out. Harvey's all bent out of shape, and he's mad, and, and he's thinking, how dare she turn him down? You know, he's all ready, and he's got him, his adrenaline up, and he's all ready to kill somebody. So he goes home, he gets his pictures out, and, well, you know what he does. So now he's mad at Ruth, and he wants to get back at her, teach her a lesson. The next night, he goes back, unannounced. She doesn't appear to be home. He's now fixated on her because he thinks that she insulted him. So he feels the need to punish her. He goes to a nearby bar, drank and smoked, and then went back to Ruth's place, saw that there was a light on. And he said later that she seemed reluctant, but she let him in. And it was interesting that as socially inept as he was, that he could pick up on the fact that she seemed reluctant. Of course, he doesn't care. But later, during his confession, a cop said to him, quote, you definitely had plans then of having intercourse one way or another, either willingly on her part or raping her. Is that right? Harvey said, yes. He's got his gun in pocket. He has the rope in the car. He goes in her apartment, locks the door, and around and he's got his gun on her. And he said, show me the bedroom. He ties her hands behind her back. She has a little collie, and she put him in the bathroom. Don't worry, he'll be okay. He put her on the bed, tied her ankles, gagged her with a cloth, did the, you know, the ropes configuration as he liked. Then he sat there and phoned her. He said later to police that he told her, quote, I want to make love to you, end quote. I don't know if he actually used the phrase make love. It's pretty disgusting because we know it's rape. But to him, this is all fantasy. And in his fantasy, it is making love because in his fantasy, she's willing. He told her he'd untie her if she promised not to try anything foolish. 
So she nods, and he told her to undress. Then he said he raped her repeatedly four or five times. Finally, he was tired. He'd exhausted himself. And he's like, well, you know, now I have to decide whether or not to kill her. He later told police, quote, I didn't want to kill her. She was the one I really liked, end quote. This is strange because it started out that he was mad at her because he felt like she kind of dissed him. He didn't get the chance to know her or talk to her at, at all, really. So, I mean, who knows what Harvey was thinking? He just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'm thinking that, and this is just pure speculation on my part, that he was so delusional that he imagined that he could actually have a real relationship with her after he'd raped her like five times. He tells her, I want to take you on a picnic. And he told police that she seemed enthusiastic, which I'm thinking was either a delusion, again, on his part, or she really was. She saw this as a possible chance to escape. She brought some brandy. He demanded $20 from her. And later, he told police that she said she, her boyfriend might come by, but he said he thought she was making that up. They left near midnight. Her hands are tied. He said he put her coat over her shoulders so that nobody would see the rope, you know, her hands tied behind her back. And it's July. I'm thinking the coat, well, whatever. So they get in his car and he goes his favorite way down south towards the desert. He said they stopped for gas twice, and both times he told her to pretend she was sleeping. This was the old days when they would, like, come to your car, an attendant would, and actually put the gas in it. You didn't do it yourself. So somebody would have been real close to the car and would have actually seen her. He told her, as he told the other ones, that he'd shoot her if she tried to escape. And just when you think this can't get any weirder, he said on one stop they ate a snack of bread, peanut butter, and fruit. And he told the police, quote, I petted her for a while and ran my hands over her, end quote. And he said they did this routine in two or four different spots on the way. Of course, they're going to the desert near Santa Ana. They get to the desert... He gets out his trusty blanket, picnic blanket, spreads it out, and they spent the whole day in the desert, the whole day, or at least according to him, taking pictures and, quote, having sex. He said that she was bound and gagged for pictures, but not for, quote, making love. Now, it's hot. It's July. It's middle of the day. It's Los Angeles, and she was complaining about being hot. By this time, he'd actually convinced himself that she was having a good time. Let's look at the escalation of Harvey. Most serial killers do escalate in some way. Like each killing is more usually more brutal, more violent, etc., as their need for violence or power, whatever it is, increases. Take this for an example. I love roller coasters. I've mentioned before. So when I go to an amusement park, I start out with a tame roller coaster. Then I go to a bigger one, then a bigger one, because I want to raise the level of the thrill or the adrenaline rush that I'm getting. 
It's the same with serial killers or other serial offenders like rapists. They're all looking to up the ante or up the adrenaline rush. So with Harvey, it's weird because he murders all the victims in the, in the exact same way. But what changes is the time that he spends with them. More and more time. Like he's convinced himself that they're on a picnic. They're on a, a date. They're making love. He's convinced himself that they're not victims, but he thinks they're his fucking date and having a grand old time. My theory on this, and this is, I didn't read this anywhere. This is just all my own theory, is that his self-esteem is so non-existent that the only way he can think women are interested in him is by force. So he's in the desert with Ruth, the sun is going down, and he has to decide again what he's going to do with her. He told the police, quote, I tried and tried to figure out how to keep from killing her, but I couldn't come up with any answers, end quote. So he moves places, and this would be about 30 miles from where he killed Shirley. I have no idea why. He ties her up and puts her on the blanket and takes his pictures. He told the police, quote, by that time she was getting pretty sickly looking and she said she just couldn't stand the heat anymore, end quote. They stayed there till it got dark because he wanted night pictures. So finally, he hogtied and strangled her like the others. He took her clothes, purse, stockings, and watch, and of course the rope. He threw everything out the window except for the rope, stockings, slip, and $10. When he got back to L.A., it was just getting light out. So he'd been with her for an entire day, which is mind-blowing. On July 27th, Ruth's apartment manager noticed that her mail was piling up. And this person, I want to, like, choke because instead of... This is an apartment manager, so obviously he has a fucking key, right? Instead of opening the door, and remember her dog is still in there. This is why I'm so mad about it. He wrote a letter to her mother in New York. So her mother calls the Plattsburgh, New York police. They call the LAPD. They get this Lieutenant Jones on the case. He finally went and opened her door, found this poor dog shut in the bathroom, almost starved. And he also noticed the similarities between Ruth, Judy, and Shirley. A few days after he killed Ruth, Harvey got a job as a repairman at something called Bruce Radio, which he would keep until he would be arrested, which is not that far away. He was going through kind of a mental breakdown or something. His obsession with dominating women was increasing. He was... I know this is disgusting to think about, but masturbating compulsively, even more so than before, and also feeling guilty. And his hygiene uh, was kind of being ignored. A lot of people, when they're mentally ill, if they're extremely depressed, or maybe they're schizophrenic and they're having some kind of breakdown, for some reason, a lot of people neglect their hygiene. And this might possibly be an explanation. I have no idea. I'm just speculating. So now he, in addition to just looking like a weird, perverted creep, he also looked dirty, unkempt, and stinky. By the end of the summer, he wanted another woman because 
the cycle is getting shorter, of course, as according to Joel Norris and his explanation that we went through. There was a studio, and I'm using air quotes when I say studio, I think you know what I mean, that he frequented called Diane's Studio on Sunset Boulevard that provided pinup models for hire by anybody who comes in. Basically, like I said, you can either have a your own camera or you can rent one. And this was run by a model named, wait for it, Diane. So using the name Frank Johnson, he'd been there a few times and he always just happened to get Diane for some reason. And she later said that she was put off by his appearance and smell. On October 27th, he goes in and Diane's like, I'm too busy, but I have somebody you might like. She gives him the number of 28-year-old Lorraine Vigil, who's new to modeling, worked as a secretary, and had only been with this Diane for a couple days. So Diane calls Lorraine and she says, there's a dude here with a possible job. His name's Frank Johnson. I'm sending him over. And then this quote, this is an exact quote, and it must have come from either Diane or Lorraine. She said, quote, listen, Lorraine, about this guy. He's sort of creepy. Just watch yourself, end quote, in what would be like the understatement of the year. Lorraine opens her door and she sees this rumpled, creepy looking dude with big ears She got in the car with him and noticed that he stunk. He told her that they're going to his studio in Anaheim. And he later said that he'd already decided that he was going to kill her after he took the pictures. And that seems to be a recurring theme with him, too. He would later say, okay, yeah, I'd already made up my mind I'm going to kill her. And then he would spend more time with her, more time with her bluff making or eating fruit or petting or whatever it was. And then he'd be like, well, maybe not. I kind of like her. I think she likes me. I think she's having a good time. Maybe I'll keep her alive. And he always ended up killing them anyway. Lorraine later said that, quote, spoiler alert, she lives. And you're going to love this next part. So hang on for this. This is the best part of the story. She said, I did not become alarmed until we entered the Santa Ana freeway and he began driving at a tremendous speed. He wouldn't answer my questions or even look at me, end quote. She finally realized that there was no studio and he has abducted her. She thought about jumping out of the car, but they were going too fast. So Harvey goes, I think we've got a flat. Whether or not they did, or this was just one of his tricks, nobody knows. But he pulls over, and this would be near the town of Tustin. Then he pulls out his gun, points it at Lorraine, and he goes, quote, I'm an ex-con, and I'll kill you if you give me any more problems. Lorraine said, what do you want from me? He said, quote, I want sex. I need to tie you up, end quote. So as he's tying her hands, she jerked away. Grab for his gun. They fought over the gun. The gun went off. This is just like something out of a movie. The bullet grazed her thigh and it like startled Harvey. And he goes, I shot you. And he was like momentarily shocked. So she took advantage of this moment of surprise that she had, opens the car door, and they fall into the road fighting. She bit his wrist. She is a total badass. Somehow she got the gun away from him. And she said, 
She would have shot him if she knew how to use it. Then they see headlights. Who comes upon the scene but a California Highway Patrolman on his motorcycle named Thomas Mulligan? In his report, he says, quote, It appeared as though two figures were struggling between the vehicle and the orange grove. A female was lying on the ground, struggling quite violently with a man on top of her, end quote. Lorraine said, quote, he's trying to kill me, help me, he's crazy, and she was crying and hysterical. His report goes on to say, quote, he was wild-eyed and quite irrational at this time. He appeared to be emotionally unstable. Later, he added, he had a lunatic stare. I'll never forget that wild look he had in his eyes. He was sloppily dressed, and I don't think he had had a bath in a week. It took three or four minutes for him to get hold of himself, end quote. Then Harvey gave this statement at the scene, and this is, quote, I just wanted to scare her. I just wanted to tie her up. I don't know if I would have raped her or not, but I might have. I'm out here for about three months from Colorado. I'm not working right now. I just met her tonight. I met her through Diane. She runs a modeling agency in Hollywood. It's my gun. I've had it for quite a long time. No, I don't have a permit for it. Back where I come from, you don't need one. End quote. His car was impounded by Tustin police, and of course they searched it, and they found quite a list of items. Jars with water, apples, shaving soap, cigarettes, peanut butter, applesauce, toilet paper, camera, several rolls of film, a box of 32 shells, a shell clip, a camera light meter, several pieces of small rope, two radios, a pillow, several items of men's clothing, blankets, miscellaneous papers and maps, a tripod, and a toolbox with miscellaneous tools. So he was booked at the Orange County Jail in Santa Ana, and as it turns out, he would be prosecuted by San Diego County. He was initially charged with attempted rape of Lorraine. They literally just came upon this scene and arrested him. They have no idea yet that he's a serial killer. And at this garage in Tustin, his car was searched more thoroughly, and they found red rubber gloves, $200, which is a lot of money back then, under the floor mat, and $750 in his wallet. And the police at first thought he might be a robber. Now, while Lorraine was having her bruises and bullet scratch photographed, the police questioned Harvey. And in their report, he said his purpose of kidnapping Lorraine was, quote, to satisfy his sexual desire. And then he said, quote, I was going to screw her if I had to satisfy myself. Maybe I would have satisfied by petting her. I don't know how far I would have went, end quote. When asked why there was food and water in the car, he said, quote, with the record I have, and if she jumped out of the car or got away from me, and reported what I had attempted to do, the police would be looking for me, and I would have used the food and stayed away from home or any place, would have parked on some out-of-the-way road for several days. Even if I had completed the act I desired and let the victim out someplace, she may have reported it and anything 
can go wrong sometime. I just wanted to be prepared in case something went wrong, end quote. And did you notice, I mean, the whole thing's just weird, but the thing that kind of stands out to me is he called her the victim. To me, that suggests that he's done this before or he's done something like this before. So in the meantime, the police find his record, and that would be from Colorado and New York. They find that he's done time at Sing Sing and in Colorado. Remember Lieutenant Martin Jones from the LAPD Wilshire Division? He was the one who was in charge of Ruth Mercado. Well, he got word of Harvey's arrest, and he thought, hmm, you know, that sounds like he could be good for this. So the LAPD sent two detectives to help question the suspect about Ruth and Shirley, and detectives from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department sent somebody there about Judy Dahl. Interesting note, one of the cops sent was a detective named Pierce Brooks. And you may recall that name because he went on to form the FBI's VICAP program. That stands for Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. And he said that he was actually inspired by Harvey Glattman's case, which made him realize that serial offenders, especially homicides, could be linked by their signatures. And we'll talk about signatures a little bit later. So all these cops are questioning Harvey, not at once, but separately. Harvey maintained at first that the attack on Lorraine was impulsive, but the cops knew better. They saw through him. They saw that he was shaky and a liar, and they think he's going to crack with just a little bit of pressure, which he did. But first he played dumb and just kind of talked in circles. He agreed to a polygraph, and while hooked up to the polygraph, he was pretty much deny, 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 until he was shown the picture of Ruth Mercado. And Sergeant Rios, who was there, is quoted as saying, the polygraph needle about hit the ceiling, end quote. So then Harvey broke down and confessed. He said, quote, you can't beat the machine. I suppose you found my toolbox. You're just playing with me now, end quote. So he admitted to killing Ruth. And then he goes, quote, I killed a couple of other girls too. So all these cops are looking at each other and everybody's like, um, toolbox? Meanwhile, they were searching his little house and they found in the garage the toolbox to which he was referring. It contained 22 pictures in color and black and white of his victims, Ruth's ID, Judy's shoe, and Shirley's panties. So they start with number one, Judy, and he gave details of the whole thing while they recorded on tape. When they were discussing the pictures, he talked about in detail, like he was bragging what kind of film, what kind of, I don't know, lighting or lenses or whatever kind of photography details, like he was showing off his knowledge of photography. And I guess uh, photography was probably one of the few things he did know enough about to brag about. Regarding the killings, he said, quote, With each one, 
I did it the same way. After I attacked them, I knew I had to kill them or they could identify me and identify my car. So I would drive into the desert, sometimes on the pretext of taking more pictures, sometimes without any reason. I would make them kneel down. With everyone, it was the same. With the gun on them, I would tie this five-foot piece of rope around their ankles. Then I would loop it up round their neck. Then I would stand there and keep pulling until they quit struggling. End quote. One of them asked, why not you shoot them? And he said, well, it was too messy. And that there is bullshit because we all know that he had to use the rope because it's his signature. It's central to his fantasy. Remember, it's all about the rope. So to Harvey, there was never a question that he was ever going to shoot anybody or kill anybody any other way besides with a rope. He said that he wanted to give himself up, but he didn't have the guts, which is probably true. And here's another bullshit line here. When asked about the souvenirs in the box, he told the cops that he, quote, kept incriminating evidence of his crime so that if he was ever caught, he would be convicted, end quote. Like I said, that's bullshit. We know why he kept the stuff. So the police ask him, how many others are there? Because they had some unsolved similar homicides in Colorado, Florida, and other areas of Los Angeles. And Harvey said, aren't three enough? And he seemed to feel better after confessing. Then he took questions from reporters. He said, quote, I really didn't like to kill. I didn't have that urge. It was just that I got past the point of no return, end quote. I actually tend to believe this, that he didn't like the actual killing part, that he liked the ropes and the pictures and the petting and fondling and all the other things. Then, and this is like central right here, so pay attention in case you're not, in case you're sleeping or something. The reporters said, why strangle them? And he said, quote, ever since I was a child, I have been fascinated by rope. It seems as if I always had a piece of rope in my hands, end quote, or other places. He said he felt bad for his mom, and in this was pretty shitty. The reporters found her and called her to get a statement from her before the police did. So she found out from reporters. And she's quoted as saying, Oh my God in heaven, not my boy, not my boy. He was always so good. He never hurt anybody, end quote. And I know she was in shock and nobody wants to learn that their child is a serial killer, but that's a perfect example of how deep her denial was. She said he was always so good, um, except for when he was in prison. So the cops took Harvey on a field trip so that he could show them where he'd put the bodies. And it was right after he, he confessed so that he wouldn't change his mind. It was just happened to be the middle of the night. So they go to the Anza Borrego Desert State Park, which was 82 miles north of San Diego. It's one o'clock in the morning. They hike for about a quarter of a mile. And he says, this is the place. It will be on the left side of a bush. They look for an hour, and then they saw a tan coat. 
and he said, there it is. And it was Shirley's remains. There were more of her remains that had been scattered by animals. Next, they went and found Ruth's remains, and he directed them about half an hour away to the Imperial County Lawn. This is four o'clock in the morning now. And he led the way to a skeleton with dark hair. And we've heard of other serial killers like uh, Gary Ridgway, Gerard Schaefer, Ted Bundy. They used to go back to their bodies and usually commit necrophilia. And they usually used landmarks, like, I don't know, trees or specific rock formations or I don't know, whatever. But I couldn't find any evidence of it, but I have no idea how Harvey was finding these in the desert, in the middle of the night. I just really am at a loss to explain that. As far as I know, and I have to stress that, as far as anybody knows, I've never read about it anywhere. I've never heard of him going back to visit these bodies, but who knows, really. Three days later, near Indio, they found Judy's remains. And over the next few days, searchers collected most of the bodies and identified them. Remember Lorraine, who is probably the hero of this story? Well, she was actually evicted by her landlord, Mrs. Harry Ellis, because it came out that she was a model. And this bitch, Mrs. Ellis, told reporters, quote, I don't like this publicity. I warned Lorraine about the hazards of being a model, but she would not listen to me, end quote. First of all, talk about victim blaming. And second of all, fuck you, Mrs. Ellis. Lorraine is a hero. She single-handedly fought and brought down a serial killer. If it wasn't for her, who knows how many more people Harvey would have killed. I know that she did move and get a new job, but that's all the details I know about her. But I hope she went on to have a wonderful rest of her life. So this was kind of a jurisdictional mess because the four victims were abducted from L.A. County. Two were murdered in San Diego County, one in Riverside County, and Lorraine was assaulted in Orange County. So since San Diego had the most murders, which would be Ruth and Shirley, it was decided that they would go first in prosecuting, and their DA was named James Keller. On November 5th, the LAPD comes to San Diego where Harvey is, and they talk to him. They're tape recording this interview. So Sergeant Majors and Lieutenant Isbell, who are working Judy's case, start out, and they said, tell us about this crime. What were your intentions with Judy? And Harvey said, quote, I had two. I did want to take some pictures of her, but aside from that, I was interested in having sexual relations with her, and that was the main reason that I had her come to my apartment, end quote. And what's interesting is at the time he raped Judy, he was 29, he was a virgin, which there's nothing wrong with if that's, you know, your choice, but apparently to him, it really wasn't. And he lost his virginity through raping somebody, which is just awful. He said he used the gun to, quote, scare her into being submissive. And then again, he said she, quote, seemed to be partially enjoying it. 
she had indicated to me that I'm I'm trying not to laugh because this is so fucking ridiculous. She had indicated to me that she had a somewhat difficult time controlling herself around men. I understood that's what she meant by nymphomania when she had mentioned that, end quote. And I don't think I have to say that this is true only in his little fucking brain. So he goes on with the story and he said it's getting late and he's thinking how could he release her. He said he'd asked her what she was going to tell her roommates when she got home. She said she'd make up a story. And he thought the safest thing was to kill her because she knew where he lived, knew his car, etc. This is not a ridiculous thing. This would be absolutely comical if it wasn't tragic. He claimed she came over and sat on the couch with him, watched TV with him, snuggled with him, and dozed. Yes, Harvey, you've just tied up and raped this woman and threatened her life, and she came to snuggle with you and fell asleep on you. I'm sure everybody believed that. The police asked him if he had decided how to kill her. And again, this this is bullshit here because we know that he always knew, but he went through the, the little rigmarole. He said, well, Maybe he'd shoot her, but no, that's too messy and the bullets can be traced. And then he thought strangling would cause little suffering. That's bullshit. Um, I don't know about you, but if I had the choice between being shot and strangled, I'd pick shot. I mean, I'm just saying strangling just seems so horrible. I mean, that's maybe that's just me. He said that after he killed her, quote, I was sort of shocked at myself, and just for an instant, I wanted to undo what I had just done, end quote. And that rings true to me, that statement there, because when I was pre-sentence investigations and I would question people who had been convicted of homicide, you know, killed somebody, I like to ask them, just for my own personal um, nosiness or curiosity, Okay, after you killed this person, what were you thinking? What did you do? What went through your mind? And the great majority said kind of what he did, that they were shocked. They couldn't believe what they had just done. They were like, oh, my God, I just killed somebody. And a lot of them said that they took a long walk just to kind of clear their head. Or I can imagine it's you've done something so horrible and, and so unexpected, I guess, that you have to like process it. So, so many of them said they went for a really long walk or, if it was possible, a long drive. And notice that in each of Harvey's three murders, he commits them pretty far from where he lives. So, he's got that whole drive back, long drive, well, a couple hours, to Los Angeles to kind of process and I guess maybe calm down and like let the adrenaline come off, if you know what I mean. And another interesting thing, he claimed he threw Judy's shoes away, but we know he kept one. And why he lied about this, I mean, I have a guess. It seems like when he's asked specifically about something sexual that he all of a sudden kind of gets, um, you know, like he doesn't want to talk or, or embarrassed or ashamed. So he probably whacked off in her shoe, to be uh, 
bluntly honest. And I can see where that would be kind of embarrassing. So now it's 920 at night and they change detectives and now they're talking about Shirley's murder. The police say, quote, Harvey, for the sake of the recording, I will again admonish you that all statements which you make at this time are being recorded on tape, which you are aware of, and that all statements made by you and recorded on this tape can be used against you in your prosecution for the murder of Shirley Ann Bridgeford. With this warning, do you desire to make a statement? End quote. The reason I mention that is do you notice anything different about what you usually either see on TV or read in books or hear? It's 1958. Miranda versus Arizona, which is where we get the term Miranda warning from, hadn't gone to court yet, and that will be in 1966. So it was only after 1966, after Miranda, that you started hearing the familiar, you have the right to remain silent, blah, blah, blah. This that they used is the older pre-Miranda criminal caution. I, I just found that interesting. So they asked him what was his purpose in contacting the Lonely Hearts Club. And he said, quote, well, my reason for wanting to locate one was that I wanted to have female companionship leading to sexual intercourse, end quote. They end that interview at 10.15. Then they start talking about Ruth. This story is longer since he spent the most time with her. And they talked about Ruth until 11.20 p.m. Then they had him describe his attack on Lorraine. Again, he admitted that he wanted her for sexual relations. So after he's done talking, they have him in the suicide watch cell in the San Diego jail, which I think is pretty standard. And that means that a guard, somebody has to like be watching you all the time so that you don't off yourself. And this is funny. The guard had to look at him all the time. And Harvey got irritated and he said, quote, what do you think I am, a freak? Yes, Harvey, we do. Now, Harvey was a little bit ahead of his time because in 1958, remember, the term serial killer had not yet been coined. So the idea of one person committing more than one murder for, um, I guess you could say, recreational or thrill purposes was kind of new. They called them multiple murderers or sometimes recreational murder. He was arraigned on November 6th on two counts of murder for Shirley and Ruth, and he had a private defense attorney named Willard Whittinghill. He wanted Harvey to plead insanity, but Harvey just wanted the death penalty. He's like, no, I just want to die. Kind of like Israel Keys. He was like, fuck it. I did it. I can't stand the thought of being in prison for the rest of my life. Just kill me and get it over with. So his mom, Ophelia, who's now 69, comes to visit him. And then she told the reporters that he's, quote, not a vicious man. He's sick, end quote. His attorney agreed, but he's kind of getting paid to. He's like, Harvey's rational now, but he's like Jekyll and Hyde. He has periods of violence. And there is actually a lot of psychological stuff that occurs, but I'm going to save that all till the end. I want to talk about what happens to Harvey during his time in prison. On November 21st, 1958, he pled guilty and he was sentenced to death at the gas chamber at San Quentin. His judge, Judge 
Huwicker said, quote, I sat here and listened to those recordings, the manner in which these women were killed, and it was really shocking. I never heard anything like it. I hope I never hear anything like it again. The torment, the suffering these women must have suffered during the night and on the desert, being choked to death, it must have been horrible, end quote. The defendant made a statement to the media that death was about what he wanted. He claimed to be remorseful, and he wrote a letter saying that he wanted his automatic appeals dismissed. In December, he was sent to San Quentin, and he was well-behaved on death row. The only issue he had was he said that he was super sensitive to noise. He wrote a letter to the warden complaining about his, I guess, neighbors on either side being too noisy. And fucking Harvey, he said, quote, one thinks he's a singer and the other just has a variety of weird noises, end quote. And he said they were driving him nuts. Amazingly, his wish was granted and he was moved. For his last meal, which he got to pick, I guess, anything he wanted on top of the, uh, request, he wrote a gas chamber special, and that was shrimp cocktail, rare T-bone steak, french fries, banana split. He asked for beer, but they said he couldn't have beer, but in place of beer, they gave him asparagus and salad. Now, I don't like beer. I don't drink it, but for some reason, I'm thinking asparagus is not really a good substitute for beer. If you're a beer drinker, let me know if I'm right. Later, he had some Coke and another banana split. For breakfast, he had eggs, bacon, potatoes, butter toast with jelly, orange juice, and coffee. This was on September 18th, 1959. So he was cuffed and shackled and walked calmly to the octagonal-shaped gas chamber at 10 o'clock a.m., it's, I read how the gas chamber worked, and I say worked as in past tense because they don't use it anymore. It sounds pretty horrific. They have these buckets inside, and I guess there's water in them, and they lower the sodium cyanide pellets, like mechanically or through a string or whatever, and they kind of plop them into the water, and it creates this gas, this hazardous fog that when you breathe in, obviously it kills you. And the reporter said he slumped forward and it took him 12 minutes to die. Ophelia didn't come or even claim his body. She's like, oh, fuck him. I don't care what happens to him. But she did want his camera. And six years later, she was trying to get his life insurance money. I don't know if she ever did or not. Now, Let's talk about psychology, and there's a ton to talk about. There's so much information here that I had to pare it down. And he was analyzed by many different psychiatrists and psychologists throughout his life. There's a lot of psychobabble, much of which is outdated. So I'll streamline it and put it into plain language as much as I can. In Sing Sing, he was given a lot of tests, and I'll tell you about them just so that you know what they are. I'm sure everybody's heard of the Rorschach test. That's the inkblot. And in this one, the person's perceptions of the inkblots are analyzed using either 
the psychologist's own interpretations or algorithms, and I have no idea how you would even do that. It was developed by a Swiss psychiatrist named Hermann Rorschach in 1921, and we could have an entire podcast just on Rorschach tests. Today, they're not very popular or well-used because they are very subjective. Somehow, through these inkblots, Harvey's psychologist got that, quote, authority figures are threatening to him, and I don't know how you could get that out of somebody saying, well, it looks like a butterfly to me, because it seems like they all look like butterflies. I don't know. Then he took the thematic apperception test. This is also controversial because it's subjective. It was developed in the 1930s. It's like a, a series of picture cards, and you tell the person, put these in order and tell a story about it. And it has a very complex scoring system, and it's like the inkblot. It's very controversial because it's it has to be interpreted subjectively by whoever's giving it. But from this, they got that Harvey had mixed feelings towards his home and family, and, quote, he is much more closely attached to his mother. And uh, really, you needed a shrink to tell that. This one's interesting. He sees his dad is superior and somewhat punitive, who makes him feel inadequate. And the rest of the notes from this psychologist or psychiatrist stress feelings of inadequacy. It says he feels inadequate as a male. And quote, he is hostile towards women, but this hostility does cause some guilt feelings, and that he is somewhat exhibitionistic. He tends to blame others for difficulties, and that is pretty much all criminals, or at least everyone that I've ever met. He, quote, lacks persistence in his motivation, and quote, in layman's terms, he's lazy, and I think we already knew that. He was found to be immature which I think we also kind of figured out, doesn't accept responsibility or restrictions easily, and, quote, tends to feel rejected by most of the people he encounters, end quote. This person diagnosed him with secondary psychopathy. And I don't know if you remember, if you heard last year, I did the little lesson on psychopaths versus sociopaths. I did discuss briefly the difference between primary and secondary psychopaths. And secondary is means that the person is antisocial because of severe emotional problems or inner conflicts. They're like emotionally unstable. The primary psychopath is like your typical, what you think of when you think of Ted Bundy or the dude from American Psycho, like cool, calm, and collected, that type. And the uh, secondary is a little bit more of a mess if you want to look at it that way. When he went to San Quentin later on, he was given a pre-sentence investigation, which, of course, I used to do. And there are excerpts from his. It never actually says pre-sentence investigation, but, I mean, I know that that's what it was because it, it says that a probation officer was assigned a report and blah, blah, blah. The probation officer who did it talk to Ophelia because whenever you 
do them, you talk to the family members. So she stood firm in her belief that he, quote, must be insane. And interestingly, she claimed that his crimes were, quote, sudden outbursts. And the investigator wrote that this, I don't think he said bullshit, but this is basically bullshit because he literally had a gun and a rope when he took them into the desert. When asked to describe his chief weakness, Ophelia said, quote, his condition has caused him to become antisocial. He did not care to mix in society, therefore keeping to himself mostly, end quote. She said he wouldn't cooperate in family living or take responsibility for things. And this, to me, is fascinating. She said he hated his father, quote, for no apparent reason. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Maybe jot it down if you've got a TCU pen. Then she, in a um, pretty much what are you thinking, Ophelia moment, said, quote, we led a normal, quiet life. And I'm convinced she was either blind and deaf or had her head so much up her ass that she was totally unaware that her son was literally a budding serial killer. Whenever he was caught assaulting women, he was just playing, or he didn't mean it, or well, at least he didn't hurt them, or he's has problems, or he's misunderstood. She takes the um, the role of the coddling mother, and she just goes way dramatically overboard with it. So this investigator noted, quote, Glattman indicates that he had planned to commit the crime of rape for some time, end quote. And after he killed Judy, quote, Glattman says that immediately after the murder, he was sick and could hardly believe what he had done. He termed himself a cold-blooded murderer, end quote. And he, this, to me, is really interesting. Harvey told the investigator that when he was killing people, he had to, quote, blank out his mind as to what he was doing. And that would be, if you're doing something, okay, imagine yourself doing something extremely distasteful, changing a dirty diaper. To me, that, that would be extremely distasteful. I guess you just compartmentalize your mind so much that you kind of take yourself away mentally from what you're doing as much as you can. Do you get, are you with me? So that you don't realize exactly what you're doing because it's so distasteful or disgusting or upsetting to you. And that's why I really think that Harvey was remorseful. I mean, as perverted and sick and disgusting and demented and depraved as he was, I do think that he was remorseful. He said that he was the most sorry for Shirley because she had two kids. And I guess in his thinking, Judy had one kid. So I guess two, you know, like, I guess if he had killed somebody with three, then he would feel the most sorry for them. I, I don't know. And I think we know this part, but he told the investigator that he got, quote, psychological satisfaction from tying up victims. He also admitted, and this is pretty much true with all serial killers, the first kill was the hardest, then it became easier, 
he was asked if he got out, would he kill people again? He said yes. But he said he would not have killed people if he had been able to achieve what he called, quote, a normal marriage relationship. These are the words of the investigator. Also, when he was in San Quentin, he was evaluated by chief psychiatrist David Schmidt. He was, again, quiet and cooperative. Strangely, he gave his motive for the killings as, quote, getting even with society, which kind of goes against everything that he's told anybody else. His affect was bland and inappropriate. And here's the big one. Here's his diagnosis. Schizoid personality disorder with obsessive compulsive paranoid features. Remember who had, well, one of many people probably, who somebody we talked about who had schizoid personality disorder was Pazuzu. The main feature of it is you avoid social interactions. You have a limited range of emotions. Most of these people are like loners. These people don't show much emotion. They appear to lack motivation and goals, which is definitely Harvey. He was said to have an obsessive-compulsive personality, and that's different from the disorder from OCD. If somebody has OCD, meaning this, the disorder, it's to the point where it interferes with their ability to function with their daily life. If they just have the personality type, it means that their thoughts and behavior are obsessive. And this is definitely true with Harvey. People like this are prone to anxiety and they like routine. And Harvey liked his routine. Think of his killings, the ropes, the configurations. This rope has to go here. This one goes here. This one goes here. That like screams compulsion right there, compulsive behavior. He was also found to be anxious, depressed, and socially introverted, had confusion, extreme insecurity, sensitive, and suspicious. And he told the uh, psychiatrist that he, quote, can't stand stupid people. Okay, now, who's familiar with Roy Hazelwood? I think we've probably talked about him before. He was one of the founders of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. He's written some good books. He studied Harvey. As a matter of fact, Harvey was the first sex offender that Roy Hazelwood ever studied, and he says that he remains one of the most complex. So we're going to talk about porn for a little bit here. Harvey used porn to validate his deviance. So the cycle goes, he would look at it, he would masturbate, and that produces a, a good feeling, and that reinforces the use of it, and then the cycle continues. So Roy Hazelwood said that there are two types of criminals who use porn. The first one is the impulsive offender who uses porn reflectively to construct fantasies. Okay, then there's the second type. This is Harvey. Now, the second type is more intelligent, and they're more ritualistic. They absorb violent porn inflectively and incorporate it into existing fantasies. The key word here is ritualistic. In this instance, ritual is central to the offense. In Harvey's case, the ritual was the tying of the rope. He took painstaking care in tying his ropes exactly where he wanted them to be. If he didn't have his victim tied or 
when he was a kid himself tied properly, he could not um, pleasure himself or get aroused. And Robert Keppel says in his book, Signature Killers, that, quote, Glattman first photographed each victim with a look of innocence on her face as if she were truly enjoying a modeling session. The next series represented a sadist's view of a sexually terrorized victim with the impending horror of a slow and painful death edged across her face. The final frame depicted the victim's position that Glattman himself had arranged after he strangled her, end quote. And earlier on, when we were talking about Harvey as a kid choking himself, and I mentioned that autoerotic asphyxiation was common with sadomasochistic killers like him, Gerard Schaefer, DeBartolaben, well, autoerotic asphyxiation is when you rob your brain of oxygen, and this produces a kind of high, like euphoria and dizziness. Then you can possibly lose consciousness. You can also have a heart attack, suffer brain damage, or death. People who do it often masturbate while strangling themselves with cords, ropes, scarves, or by putting a plastic bag over their head, which sounds especially horrifying. Most people who die from this are teenage boys. Experts say that this should be talked about so that people learn, don't do this. Some people, like, I guess, couples, are under the false assumption that it's safe to do if there's somebody else there. Like, you know, you can um, cut the rope or take the bag off or whatever it is, but this actually is not true. Even if you think you're safe, you have a partner doing this with you, you never know what's going to end up happening. So it's just not safe at all. That's part of today's lesson. Don't do that. When his prison psychologist asked him why he tied the victims, the answer that was written was, quote, he feels he can trace this to an incident which occurred between him and his father at the age of three. He states that he has been obsessed with tying up ever since, but would not elucidate any further, end quote. Now, remember at the very beginning, I said about being three and four years old and tying himself up. And I'm like, where in the world did he learn that? So now it comes out, actually at the end of his life, that he may have learned it from his father. So the $64,000 question is, did his dad molest him and use ropes? We have no way of ever knowing this since all the participants are dead. But in my own personal opinion, I would say that that's very likely and it would explain a lot of things. It would explain why he didn't like his dad. It would explain where the obsession with ropes and hanging himself came from. It would explain his unusual attachment to his mother and his need to victimize people. So many things. I know that this is getting long, but there's two more things I want to mention that I think are very important. If they weren't important, I wouldn't mention them. I mentioned a few times about Harvey being a signature killer, and I said that I would explain what a signature killer was. In case you don't know, there's a di big difference between M.O., and signature, and sometimes people get them mixed up. MO, which means modus operandi, is how 
a person commits a crime. It doesn't have to be homicide. Think of maybe a serial rapist, a serial arsonist, anything really. But it's what they do to enable them to either get at the victim or their target or whatever. Harvey had a few. It seemed they all involved one ads. It was like, would you go on a date with me? Or usually, would you pose for me? You know, pretending he's a photographer and approaching somebody who's a model. That was his MO. An MO can change. And remember, he did change. With Judy, he did the, uh, I'm looking for a model thing. Then his next victim was Shirley. He went to the Lonely Hearts Club and took her out on a date. Signature will never change because it's central to the psychology, the, to the why the person is doing this. Harvey's signature, in case you haven't figured it out yet, is, I'm waiting for somebody to yell it out, the ropes. It's all about the ropes. Unless the person is tied up to his specification, he will get no enjoyment out of it. And also the photography, the photography of the victim, and then the keeping of the souvenirs and looking at them later, that's also a signature. That's something that he needed to do. Now, if you saw my Instagram last week, you know how I have the, the pictures from the case. I think the first picture I had was a cover of a detective magazine. And the cover was about Harvey. There was a story about these murders inside that detective magazine. One 13-year-old boy who happened to find that exact detective magazine in his father's car was named Dennis Rader. You might know him as the BTK killer. Dennis later said that when he found this magazine, he was automatically intrigued because he himself was into ropes and tying himself up, autoerotic asphyxiation, tied up his victims. And he actually did copy off of Harvey. He was so thrilled when he found this magazine of his dad's that guess what he did while he read it? Yep, that. He told Catherine Ramsland, who studied him extensively and wrote about him in a book, which I'll talk about in the show notes. By the way, Catherine Ramsland is so awesome. She's a great author. She's a forensic psychologist. I highly recommend reading anything she ever wrote because it's all fascinating. But he really opened up to her and he told her, quote, this was exactly the pictures and theme that I dreamed about. The women in the photos knew they were going to die. Glattman liked to bind their bare legs over the knees and their hands behind them. He even placed a gag twisted into a rope over their mouths. One woman, wearing just a slinky white slip, lay on a blanket bound at the ankles, knees, and hands with a rope going across her midriff. The image of the woman staring, terrorized, knowing death was coming, was frozen for me. It was part of my fantasies for the rest of my life, end quote. That is from Dennis Rader. And the thing that strikes me about that quote is he was, it seems, taken by the look of fear in the victim's eyes, as as Hardy, Harvey was taking pictures, he liked the wide-eyed look of, oh shit, he's going to hurt me. 
That is sadistic. That's obviously a very sadistic thing. And this, again, disclaimer, my own personal opinion, I've never met either one of these people, of course. I don't see that Harvey was that sadistic. I don't see personally, again, just just my opinion, that he was necessarily looking for that fear reaction or to terrorize or that he got off on the fear and terror of his victims. I could be wrong, but I'm just saying that, that I don't see that there with him. Wow, that was a long one. Okay, next week, we're going to talk about a sexual predator. And I think that not so many people have talked about or heard about her. That's right, I said her, because it's a female sexual predator. Imagine that. They are very rare. And I happened to find one. And I was like, wow, I'm fascinated by this. Why, you know, what would drive a female to do this? And hopefully you are too. You will listen next week as we investigate it. These episodes are dedicated to Judy, Shirley, and Ruth. And I will see you back here next week. Class dismissed.